Last week, we saw the fall of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And this was prophesied by Nahum, whose book in the Bible is just a short collection of prophecies about the Lord's anger with Nineveh. And, that, and that's all I'm going to say on Nahum. You just read it. It's all about, you know, what the Lord thinks about how Nineveh has been acting. When Nineveh falls in 612 BCE, the Assyrians are forced to retreat further west to Haran. But the Babylonians pursue them there and take Haran also. In 609 BCE, Egypt marches to the aid of Assyria. But King Josiah of Judah musters his troops at Megiddo to try to block Pharaoh Necho's passage and in doing so gets himself killed. His son, Jehoahaz, comes to the throne, but only reigns three months before Pharaoh Necho returns and takes him captive and puts his brother Eliakim on the throne. Pharaoh Necho renames Eliakim Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is wicked and does evil in the sight of the Lord. Second Chronicles 35 tells us that Jeremiah writes laments upon the death of good King Josiah, and that these laments were preserved and sung, quote, to this very day, end quote. For this reason, the book of Lamentations in the Bible is attributed to Jeremiah. But the focus of the content of the book of Lamentations is actually not Josiah. It's uh, The focus is on the fall of Jerusalem and its aftermath, which doesn't happen for another 20 years or so. So based on content, the book we have as Lamentations may not be the Lamentations that Jeremiah wrote. Also, modern scholars believe the style of poetry in Lamentations is different than the passages of poetry found in the book of Jeremiah. But since we don't really know who wrote any particular passage of the book of Jeremiah or any of this stuff, I'm not sure it really matters. The Christian Bible, the Old Testament, places lamentations right after Jeremiah, tacitly linking it to him, while the Hebrew Bible does not include it with the prophets at all, but puts it in the, quote, writings, which is sort of a miscellaneous collection at the end of the Hebrew Bible, which, by the way, also is where they put Chronicles, Psalms, and other books. If you want to see more about, you know, the differences in organization between the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, you can check out class 32. King Josiah himself is not mentioned by name in Lamentations. It's sort of a short book of poetry with only five chapters. Chapters one, two, and four are very stylized poetry in a form called an acrostic. Each acrostic spells out the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so there are exactly 22 verses in each of these chapters. Chapter three is very, a very complex acrostic with three verse sets for each letter. So that chapter has 66 verses. The fifth chapter has 22 verses, but it's not in alphabetical order. If there is a method to the organization of chapter five, modern scholars have not discovered it. So the whole book of Lamentations is appropriately named, however. It is an anguished lament of deep, unassuaged grief over the fall of Jerusalem, which is about 20 years away at this point. And yet, in the very center of Lamentations, in the middle of chapter three, is a beautiful passage that has been set to music many times. In the words of the New Revised Standard Version, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Of course, with all these shifts in world power, Judah is little more than a buoy bobbing on top of an ocean just waiting to be picked off. As you would guess, the Lord bombards the new king Jehoiakim and the people of Judah with warnings. Look, Jeremiah doesn't have to go naked like Isaiah did or marry an unfaithful woman like Hosea did, but he has to do several crazy things to try to get the people's attention. 
First, the Lord tells Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house and wait for the Lord to speak to him. So Jeremiah watches the potter work, and then suddenly the clay crumples under the potter's hands. So the potter reforms it into a completely different shape. And the Lord says, Israel, Judah, and all kingdoms and nations are as clay in my hands. If a nation I intended to build up does evil in my sight, then I will regret the good things I had spoken for them. That word for regret also means repent. And in this particular form of the verb, it also carries the meaning of consoling oneself. It's a loaded word. It's how you would feel if you worked hard searching for the perfect gift for someone you love very much. And when you gave it to them, they threw it on the ground and stomped on it. You yourself would feel wounded and in need of consolation. This word conveys that this is how the Lord feels. And the Lord says, if at any time I speak ruin or destruction on a nation and that nation repents, then I will relent and will not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. So there it is in black and white. This distills the situation between the Lord and all the nations of the world down to a nutshell. The Lord then tells Jeremiah to purchase a clay jar from the potter and go get some of the priests and important men and take them all out to the Valley of Hinnom. You remember the significance of this valley. It's where the child sacrifice takes place, the idol worship God particularly abhors. And there Jeremiah tells the priests and leaders, the Lord says, I am going to bring such a disaster that it will make the ears of anyone who hears it tingle. You have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. You have burned your children as offerings to Baal, something I never commanded nor even thought of. So beware, the day will come when this valley will no longer be called the Valley of Hinnom, but will be called the Valley of Slaughter, because here my people will fall to their enemies. The siege will press them so hard they will eat each other, even their own sons and daughters. Then Jeremiah smashes the jar in front of all these important leaders and says, the Lord says, I will smash Judah and Jerusalem just as this jar is smashed so that they will be beyond repair. And then Jeremiah goes right back to the courtyard of the temple and keeps on prophesying the disaster to come. As you can imagine, this does not go over very well. This is not the party line. All the priests and leaders have been telling the people, peace, peace, all will be well. So the priest in charge of the temple has Jeremiah beaten and put in stocks, which happen to be handy right there at the temple gate. But he releases Jeremiah the next day. And Jeremiah tells that priest, the Lord is changing your name from Pashur to, quote, terror on every side in the end quote, because you yourself will see all your friends fall by the sword and you and they will all be carried off into captivity to Babylon. And there you will die because you have prophesied lies. Then in Jeremiah chapter 20, there's a great passage that doesn't get quoted very much, as you can imagine. Jeremiah says, you deceived me, Lord. That word deceived is in a form that can also mean allured, enticed, or persuaded. Jeremiah is saying, you did a bait and switch on me, Lord. Jeremiah's call had been so dramatic. Remember, the Lord told him he was appointing Jeremiah over kingdoms and nations to uproot them as well as build them up. I don't think what Jeremiah had in mind after that call was quite what it is working out to be in real life. Jeremiah says, 
that's not what it's like at all, Lord. I get ridiculed all day long. The only words you give me to say are words of disaster and destruction. No one wants to hear that. I am a pariah. If I, if I keep my mouth shut, it's like my bones are on fire. I am so tired. Poor Jeremiah. I know you're with me, Lord, and I hope you let me see your vengeance after all this. I just wish I'd never been born. What's the point of my life? All I have is trouble and sorrow. At this rate, I will end my days as an object of shame. Poor Jeremiah. He, if he spoke, he ended up a pariah and despised and beaten by the people. And if he didn't speak, his very mouth would burn. His bones would burn. The message had to come out. Little does poor despairing Jeremiah know that we will be reading his words and paying attention to them thousands of years later. He could not see us nor even imagine us. We're now four years into Jehoiakim's reign. The year is 605 BCE. All of the major world powers confront each other at the Battle of Karshemesh. Egypt and Assyria against the Babylonians and the Medes. Nabopolassar's health has deteriorated, so it is his son, Nebuchadnezzar, who leads the Babylonians in battle. Nebuchadnezzar had been general for his dad all, the, all along, but now Nebuchadnezzar has, has ascended to the throne. So at the Battle of Karshemesh, Nebuchadnezzar on one side, Egyptians and Assyrians on the other. The battle is the end of the Assyrians. The Egyptian pharaoh Necho retreats swiftly, and Nebuchadnezzar is the victor. Jeremiah says to the people, I've been telling you for 23 years since the middle of King Josiah's reign that the Lord will bring destruction. And the Lord sent other prophets with the same message, but you ignored them just like you ignore me. And now the time has come. The Lord is summoning Nebuchadnezzar to destroy you and all the surrounding nations. All of you will be enslaved by Babylon for 70 years. But at the end of the 70 years, the Lord says, I will punish Babylon and it will be desolate forever. And Babylon will be repaid for what they have done. So you've got a situation where Babylon is um, a, like a tool almost in the hands of, of God. They, are, they, are, they want to attack Judah and the Lord is letting them. But even though the Lord is letting them because of what Ju Judah has done, it's in an effort to turn Judah to the Lord. The Lord is still not going to sit for Babylon harming his, harming his people. It's hard to wrap your mind around, but that is what is happening here. So then Jeremiah has a vision of the cup of the wine of the Lord's wrath. The Lord commands Jerusalem and all of Judah to drink from it, as well as all the kings of all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. And after them, the king of Shishak. Shishak is a Hebrew cryptogram used in the Bible to represent Babylon. The background of the cryptogram is too complicated for me to explain here, but you can look it up online if you're interested. So this is a, a hugely terrifying dream to Jeremiah. The Lord tells Jeremiah, if the nations protest and refuse to drink, tell them I am even bringing disaster on Jerusalem. So how could the rest of the nations go unscathed? The Lord insists that Jeremiah stand faithfully in the courtyard of the temple and proclaim his message every day on the off chance that someone will hear and repent and the Lord will not have to carry through with this destruction. Maybe the people and their kings and priests will voluntarily give up their evil ways. Yeah, don't hold your breath. It doesn't happen. Instead, the priests False prophets and people seize Jeremiah and say, traitor, traitor, you must die. Now, this is a very real threat. 
King Jehoiakim has already had another prophet of the Lord named Uriah hunted down and killed. So when the palace officials get word that a riot is happening in the temple courtyard, they hurry down and the priests and prophets and people repeat their accusations against Jeremiah. And Jeremiah cries, the Lord sent me to save you. Repent. If you put me to death, you will have innocent blood on your hands. This sounds so much like Jesus' own story, doesn't it? Jeremiah's plea strikes the heart of the people, and it strikes the heart of the palace officials. But it doesn't budge the priests and prophets from the temple. So some of the elders of the people step forward and say, Micah, the prophet in the time of King Hezekiah, also prophesied these same things. And he was not put to death. Remember how King Hezekiah humbled himself? And the Lord relented. We're bringing disaster upon ourselves. Then Ahikam, one of the highest ranking palace officials, stands up in support of Jeremiah and the crisis is over. Jeremiah's life is spared this time, but he's barred from going to the temple precincts, at least for the time being. I think this brush with death may have made Jeremiah realize how easily his voice could be silenced. So when the Lord tells him to write all his prophecies down, he doesn't hesitate to call on his good friend Baruch. Jeremiah dictates and Baruch writes. And when they're done, Jeremiah tells Baruch to take the scroll down to the temple on one of the special days of fasting when the temple will be crowded. He tells Baruch to read every word to the people so that perhaps they will repent and turn from evil. Well, one of the people who hears Baruch read the scroll is a palace official named Micaiah. Micaiah is concerned enough to tell the other palace officials about it, so they have Baruch come and give them a private reading of the scroll of prophecies. And they all agree that King Jehoiakim needs to hear it, but they ask Baruch, are the words on this, this scroll the words of Jeremiah? And when Baruch says yes, they say, give us the scroll. We'll read it to the king. You and Jeremiah go into hiding where no one can find you. And so they bring the scroll to King Jehoiakim. It's wintertime and cold. So there's a fire burning in the king's room. As the palace official reads the scroll, King Jehoiakim cuts off each section and burns it in the fire pot. Some of the braver palace officials protest and urge the king not to burn this precious scroll, but he does it anyway and then orders the arrest of Jeremiah and Baruch. But they cannot be found, for the Lord is hiding them. And once again, Jeremiah and Baruch work to create a new scroll with all those same prophecies on it, plus several more. And the Lord tells Jeremiah to tell King Jehoiakim that because he burned the words of the Lord and refused to listen, his descendants will not sit on the throne of David and his own body will not be buried with honor, but will be thrown outside and exposed to the elements. Somehow, I don't think Jeremiah hurries out to give this message to King Jehoiakim, but it appears that eventually Jeremiah is able to resume his ministry and is allowed back into the temple precincts. And presumably, he's able to get the Lord's message to King Jehoiakim without getting himself killed. And the Lord gives Jeremiah a few more object lessons to deliver to the people. At least some of the people and officials seem to be listening a little bit. So the Lord tells Jeremiah to invite some Rechabites to dinner at the temple and serve them wine to drink. Of course, everything Jeremiah does is under intense scrutiny. So everyone knows what's happening at this dinner party. You see, the Rechabites are a foreign tribe who do not drink wine and are pledged to always be nomads. But because of the threat of attack from Nebuchadnezzar, they've taken refuge in Jerusalem temporarily. But when Jeremiah offers them wine to drink, they refuse emphatically. And the Lord says, 
go tell the people of Judah, even foreign tribes obey an ancestor long dead. But I, the Lord your God, speak to you again and again, and still you do not listen to me. Therefore, all of the disaster I have warned you about will come upon you. Tell the Rechabites that because of their faithfulness to their ancestor, they will always have a descendant on this earth to serve me. Which I think is pretty cool to just think that they're somewhere in this world, descendants of the Rechabites because of this. I think that's so cool. Anyway, a year has passed now and we're at 604 BCE. Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah and Jehoiakim becomes a vassal of the king of Babylon for three years, which means he gets to be king, but he has to pay heavy taxes to Babylon every year. Three years later, in 601 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar attacks Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, but Necho is able to drive Nebuchadnezzar back, and this leads many of the smaller nations to also rebel against Babylon, including, you guessed it, Jehoiakim, who stops paying tribute to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar does not respond immediately, but the Lord allows Babylonian raiders, as well as raiders from Aram, Moab, and Ammon, to attack and bring destruction on Judah. Judah still exists, but it is suffering. And with that, Jehoiakim dies. And his 18-year-old son, Jehoiakim, with an N, becomes king. His mother's name is Nehushta, and apparently she's involved in ruling the kingdom. Jeremiah 13 refers to the king and queen mother, so we're guessing that the events in Jeremiah 13 happened during Jehoiakim's very brief reign. The Lord tells Jeremiah, Go buy an expensive linen belt and wear it, but don't wash it. So Jeremiah does that. Then, after a while, the Lord tells Jeremiah, take the belt off and go bury it under a rock by the river. Then, after several more days, the Lord tells Jeremiah, go dig that belt up out of the mud. And of course, the expensive, beautiful belt is completely ruined. And the Lord tells Jeremiah, this is exactly how I will ruin everything Judah and Jerusalem are proud of. They will be as useless as this belt. Just as a belt is tied around a waist, so I have bound all the people of Judah and Israel to me for my name and my glory and my praise. But they refuse to be my people. Go tell the people that every wineskin should be full of wine. And if they say, we know that, tell them, I'm going to fill this land with so much drunkenness that everyone smashes into each other. I will have no pity on them at all. Tell the king and the queen mother to come down from their thrones because their glorious crowns are about to fall off their heads. It's now April of 597 BCE. Jehoiakim has only been king three months when the Babylonians attack and lay siege to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar himself shows up and Jehoiakim and his mother and all his officials surrender immediately. Nebuchadnezzar takes them all prisoner, ransacks the temple and the palace. He takes captive all the officers and fighting men, all the upper-class craftsmen, a total of 10,000 people, and he leaves only the poor in the land and sets up a puppet king. So Judah still technically exists, and Jerusalem definitely still exists, but this is the biggest wave of exiles. Since these captives include the nobility of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar orders his chief court official, Ashpenaz, to pick out any young men who are well-built and intelligent and put them through a sort of Babylonian cultural boot camp where they learn the language and the history and the culture. This training is to last three years, and after that, these young men will enter the service of the king of Babylon. 
it is likely that the young men are castrated at this point. Among those chosen are a young man named Daniel and three of his friends. The Babylonian officials rename all three of them. Daniel is renamed Belshazzar, and his three friends are renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You might recognize this part of the story. It's a Sunday school favorite. Daniel is a young man of deep integrity, and he asks permission of his guard to eat only what is acceptable to the Lord. The guard has already formed a high opinion of Daniel, but he's afraid that if Daniel starts to look unhealthy, the king will notice and have his head. Since it's the meat and fish dishes that are the problem, the guard and Daniel agree that Daniel and his friends will eat only vegetables and water for 10 days as a trial run. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his friends not only look as good as the others, they look better. So they're allowed to continue to eat only vegetables and water. And the Lord blesses Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the ability to learn and absorb all they're being taught. And to Daniel, the Lord gives the ability to understand visions and dreams. At the end of the three years, Ashpenaz presents the core of young men to King Nebuchadnezzar, and the king actually spends time talking with them. Nebuchadnezzar can see that Daniel and his friends are head and shoulders above the rest, and so they enter the king's service. And as the years go by, Nebuchadnezzar finds these four young men 10 times wiser than any of the other mages in his entire kingdom. We'll stop there with the story and we'll use our breakout time to compare the words of the prophet Habakkuk with those of Jeremiah. Habakkuk's little three chapter book comes right after Nahum's in the Bible. He opens by crying out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, will you let this violence and wrongdoing go on before you do something? There is neither law nor justice anymore. And the Lord pretty much says, hold my beer. I am raising up the Babylonians to execute my judgment. But Habakkuk protests, saying, the Babylonians are just as wicked as those who came before them. And the Lord says, I am going to give you the answer and I want you to write it on a billboard so everyone can understand it. I I love just the whole idea. The Lord says, write it so large that somebody, that a messenger running past will be able to, to see it. So this is like Habakkuk is the billboard prophet. And it says, the vision speaks of the end, even though it lingers, wait for it. It will come at the appointed time. The soul of the proud is not right. Woe to the wicked, those who shed blood and do violence. You will be overwhelmed and disgraced. Most translations will say the righteous will live by faith. But the word righteous also means just. And the word translated by faith also means firmly or steadfastly. The whole passage reminds me of Jesus' parable comparing the foolish man who builds his house on the sand with the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Habakkuk continues, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like a flood. The Lord is in his holy temple. Be silent before him. The revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. I'm quoting out of the New International Version here. In our breakout groups, um, I I want to think about that passage and compare it to Jeremiah's experience at the house of the potter, where the Lord told him that the nations are as clay in his hands, and that if any time I speak ruin or destruction on a nation and that nation repents, then I will relent and will not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. But if a nation I intended to build up does evil in my sight, then I will regret the good things I had spoken for them. So I wrote all these passages into the study guide for your reference. You don't need to reread them. I just read them to you. So skip straight to the questions, um, which ask you to think about 
the fact that these prophecies are presented in pretzel time where the past, the present, and the future are just folding in on themselves. And I'm asking you, how would you separate the pieces of the prophecies, of these prophecies? What do you think is going to happen to Judah right now? What do you think will happen to Judah in the near future, say, after 70 years? And what do you think isn't going to happen until the end times? So I, when I was looking over the questions in preparation for today's class, I was thinking, man, were those first two questions redundant? Do they even get what I'm asking? Which is why I did that whole big long intro for you. <laughs> but, but what did you, what did you all think? Um, how did you think that, what things did you think would be happening immediately to Judah and Jerusalem, maybe in the intermediate and maybe in the future? What did you come up with there? We were stymied. Ah! Yeah. And we kind of got off track. (laughs) I'm afraid I pushed this into the end times a little bit. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Now that explains off track. Did anybody else, did the other group have anything? What, Erica? Well, Ellen had, because initially I was confused. I'm like, this is where I... I'm still not quite understand where does Jesus fall. I know that. Yeah. So then initially I said, I have no idea. And then Ellen, I think, (laughs) was the one that said, well, it's, it's, and it's both and. Yeah. Yeah. It was just seeming like, as you were describing pretzel time, it sounds like those prophecies were specific to that time and a specific, you know, place. But if you take kind of the 15,000 foot flyover, it just seems like it's a greater theme that, is going to continue to be ongoing. And we were, we didn't know if you saying end time, like our end time versus kind of Ross went into the end times, if that was like semantics. And if you intentionally, we're not trying to lead us into the end times, but more just saying, you know, throughout the course of our life. No, I actually meant the end times. So okay. I meant like the end times when Jesus comes in time. Mm-hmm. So I just... I just mentioned, you know, of course, in Revelation, it says Babylon is destroyed. And essentially, well, it that, said well, that, that here in, Jer- in Jeremiah, too. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's these parallels. Mm-hmm. I see, you know, Bab- well, of course, Babylon, the empire, Babylonian empire was, was, I don't know if you say destroyed, but it went into dust way, so long ago. But this whatever Babylon is is talked about in Revelation gets destroyed at the very end in the end times. Right. So so there is a there is clearly during the time frame we're studying an actual physical city of Babylon, right? And Jeremiah's prophecies specifically say that if you look in Jeremiah 29. It it said it, that there's a, lo- a letter from Jeremiah that we're, we'll cover next week, but but that that particular chapter talks about how Babylon will be destroyed because of what they did to Judah and Jerusalem, and it will be destroyed forever. It, it ain't going to come back, is what it says. Um, and and then there was during in this class, I just kind of breezed by a little statement by Jeremiah that said, but in, you know, for right now, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are, you know, going to destroy Judah and Jerusalem, right? And they're going to go into exile for 70 years to Babylon, right? And we have yet to find out what happens. We got a little snippet of it with the story of Daniel and his three friends. So who were, who were among the first wave of exiles that went to Babylon. So, but, but then there's these prophecies here that talk about, um, t- tell me which parts of these prophecies in Habakkuk and Jeremiah that we were looking at, or ones that you remember from the class or anything that are talking about um, end time kind of destruction or end time kind of anything. It doesn't have to be destruction. What what, what kinds of things are these prophets saying are going to happen at the end times? Um, you can look in that first, well, first box 
words. I think the second one that says, but those, the second bullet that says, but those who are just will live. You know, the firmly right. steadfast by faith. Right. I right. think it's going to, it's pointing towards, even though all this destruction and, and scary stuff's going to happen, God's still there and he's going to take care of people with his grace. Right. And what does it, those, like those little four bullet points, what do they say, what do they say that is going to happen to the wicked who shed blood and do violence? It's in that yeah. first box. They're, yeah. <coughs> They're going to be overwhelmed in disgrace. That's right. Is that going to happen like immediately to, to the Babylonians? Doesn't seem to, right? Is it going to happen in 70 years? Does it mean that in 70 years, Babylon's going to be disgraced and the exiles are going to come home? It doesn't exactly say that, does it? It just says the exiles get to come home in 70 years. So at some point then, after that 70 years, Babylon is going to get destroyed forever, turned to dust. Nothing's going to be there. You know, <laughs> if you read that part in Jeremiah. But but here we sit thousands of years later have the wicked been overwhelmed and disgraced yet no we're we still living with this right yeah. let, me, let me ask you gail so back, back then uh after uh, at the end of the 70 years it was king cyrus and the persians right right so the Babylonians were uh, overcome at that time, were they not? Well, I think there's probably still descendants of the Babylonians still living in the Middle East. Oh, absolutely. Um, so but- I don't think they've been overcome. They might have gone out of power. Yeah, as an empire, they time. were definitely overcome. As an empire, they went away. As a peoples, they did not as you are saying, Renee. Um, and and you uh, the site of Bab- this historical site of Babylon is now, um, has indeed been a rubble all the way to modern times. Um, it's, it's a historical ruin, yeah. you know, does not exist anymore. And yet we've got in time prophecy you know, as you say in Revelation, that talks about Babylon being a thing and needing to be destroyed again. So, you know, we'll get to that when we get to Revelation, but I want to cement in your head who Babylon is, what they've done, and what their significance is in the greater scheme of things. Because they began as evil. They were, they, they were doing evil, attacking God's people. God stood in the way. God gets out of the way. Babylonians conquer God's people. God's not happy about the Babylonians doing that. <laughs> okay. And so there's then this thing with once the God's people turn back to him, then God forgives them, takes them back, and God's going to do something about those Babylonians. We're going to see a lot of ambivalence about the Babylonians as we go forward through this whole next set of um lessons this these this part during the babylonian exile because you will see that the lord has a relationship with the babylonians too and with nebuchadnezzar and and it's just the most bizarre scenario you can imagine you know Uh, yeah you know it it takes a lot of doing but finally nebuchadnezzar uh, acknowledges the uh, power of God over. Yeah. So over it's everything. don't give, don't be a spoiler. So, so it's a, yeah. Spoiler alert there. But so, <laughs> so there's all this stuff, you know, all balled in up in there, but at the end, those two bullet points there say in the end, the, the, the wicked are going to be overwhelmed and disgraced. Those who are just quote, right. Or do justice um, will live firmly, steadfastly, will live by faith. 
and the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as if the earth was flooded. That's what that knowledge of the Lord will be like. And the Lord will be in his temple again, which clearly the Lord has like, you know, <laughs> gone at this point. Right. Um, and so, so um all of that language in Habakkuk seems to be talking about like future end times, doesn't it? I mean, I don't see the, any of that having happened at this point, but there is some sort of in this pretzel time, there's some element of this in our present. We as just, as just quote, righteous people do stand firmly like the wise man who built his house on the rock, right? There is some reality here for us today. You know what? I think that um, the whole thing and getting into what we're going to be getting into, the whole thing shows how God doesn't ever give up on us. Right. That God's always desiring for us to know. Um, I'm, I'm going to use the them. God's always desiring for us to know them better because um, even somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, God didn't give up on him. Right. God used weird ways that I take it we haven't gotten into yet um, <laughs> to, to bring him around, but God didn't give up on him. That's right. So there is some sense of that Jeremiah prophecy of the door always being open for nations to choose. They can choose and individuals, to, and individuals to choose, but also nations to choose, to choose to accept the blessings the Lord has for all nations. These are blessings available to all nations or choosing not. And that's the same invitation we have at an individual level. So that's where I was um, going in question three, in the last question, I think it's question three, where I said, okay, so here we are living in this parenthetical part of the time, right? We're in this present time where we understand what it will be like in the very end times. We understand that these threads are running through our present time. They're part of our relationship with the Lord now. So what do we do about evil in the world now? We, what? Mm-hmm. we are, you know, we are told, you know, we are in an age of grace um, and we, we, we should accept God's offer of that and also offer it to others. That is true. And they have, they have to choose that way uh, with all this bad stuff that happens otherwise. So what do we, what is our response? I think what we should I, stand against evil. Pardon? We should stand against evil. And what does that look like? Evil. That looks like love. It's loving also, people. We also need to call it out and let others kind of shine a spot like it on the evil that's going on instead of letting people just shove it into the dark corner. So that's kind of what the Lord was doing with those prophets, right? And yet, I would, and yet I would kind of play the devil's advocate because then you see some believers who are thinking they're doing what they're supposed to stand up for evil um speaking up and yet it isn't humble it isn't out of humility it isn't out of love so i think it gets tricky because i find myself now wanting to hold back based on how it has now been turned and been done in an extreme hurtful way to divide to isolate to instill fear instead of instill hope and grace and love Mm -hmm. so i don't 
know if our response is to call it out because I think that's what people are seeing right now. And we're seeing how dangerous and how hurtful and divisive it has become in our country. So I would say it continues to seem like the theme is humility. And in that humility, somehow trusting that God will speak through us. And like Shirley said, that his love through us would begin to change, not us physically having to change. I don't know that, but, but other people could say that's, that's a coward way of living or uh, um, not, I don't know. I think when you, when you begin to put that perspective into certain topics in our world, I think it will be, it's difficult to, land on just the humility because there's so many unjust things that are going on that it feels like we do have to speak up and stand up but I have a hard time speaking up and standing up when I feel like that is what's happening and it continues to destroy and break and divide more because that's part of the evil I mean so let me put it (laughs) let me put a word in here for you as a template, Jesus. How did Jesus respond to evil in his world? He got angry when it was appropriate. Very rarely, though. That was like at the religious leaders, but he did. Yes, he did. He got- that was only at the religious leaders. I never saw. I never see Jesus getting angry at the common man. <laughs> right. And um, was, was Jesus I, humble, like Erica is talking about? Of course. Yes. At times. Yes. I think he, he demonstrated through his actions the love and care for fellow people and was trying to set an example for us to follow. I agree. And I think what Erica said... Um, when you look at it from the point of view that what Julia just said and what um, Gail said, that love is being loving and being what Erica was describing is not, um, I forgot what word you used, Erica, but it's not the coward's way out. It, loving unconditionally is hard. Loving unconditionally is brave. Loving people no matter what is not the norm, but it is Jesus. But how did that look in Jesus' life? What kinds of things did Jesus do? He confronted three types of people. He confronted the people who were oppressed, marginalized, He confronted the religious leaders who were telling the people they were doing all the wrong things, okay? And who were in cahoots with the third group, which was the Roman power, empire, right? So as you recall, how did Jesus respond to the people on the bottom, the poor, the marginalized, the needy? How did he respond every single time? Love. But what did he Helping do? Not, not just, I want to he know. Helped, he helped them. He, he, yeah. he rose them, uh, you know, he cured like the leper or the lame person. He, he was, he got right there in there with them and showed them that they had value, that they weren't worthless. Yeah. He fed them. He fed them. Yeah. He met their needs. He healed them. He met their immediate bodily needs. He fed them and he spoke to their hearts. I get goosebumps. <laughs> you know, he, he met their immediate needs and he spoke to their hearts. He spoke healing to their bodies and to their hearts. And that's what he did. What did he do to their religious leaders who were telling oh. the people they were doing it all wrong? And, you called know, them out. he did what? Called them out. He called them out. He did. 
What kinds of things would he say to them? He called them whited sepulchers full of dead man's bones. In other words, they stunk. Yeah, he called. He said, "You're you're like a tomb that's been made. Uh, uh, your lipstick on a pig is what you are." Yeah. The devil. He never. He never let them squirm away. You know, he stayed right there with them. Like, no, you're going to listen to me because you need to listen to me. Yes. So even it, when seems, they didn't want to listen to him. And he challenged them with scripture. Yes, he did. And he listened and asked them questions. It's kind of like Jesus would step in between the poor p- people they were beaten up on and the religious leaders. Jesus would step right in between them. He'd face the poor people and he would protect them. He would provide for their needs. And to the religious leaders, he would say, back off, you know, but that's not all he said to them. Can, can you think of other kinds of interactions Jesus had with the religious leaders? Well, I don't know if it was the so much religious leaders, but I remember that there was the one about the the woman that was caught in adultery and they were going to stone her. And Jesus was like, no, whoever has not, is not guilty of any sin. He can throw the first stone. The only person that could do that was him. And he didn't. And, and he was like, come on people, you know? Yeah. It's a sin, but there are other sins and you're just as guilty. And what about so he was like, you need to realize that you're guilty so that you can better make yourself better. Right. He gave them the information they needed. And I think when he was dealing with them as a group, he was reprimanding them. But when he was dealing with a religious leader one-on-one, it was like talking to any other person. He did it in love. Yes. And grace and mercy. And I'm thinking, can you think of an example where, 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 he was speaking one-on-one with a, a, a religious leader or upper-class person or anything. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. He must be born again. So um, with Nicodemus, Jesus went and met him at night because that's what Nicodemus needed. Jesus And Jesus spoke to him. Jesus spoke kindly to the rich young ruler. Remember him? where Jesus spoke to him and the rich young ruler was asking him questions. What do I need to do? Rich young man, what do I need to do to, you know, find the, find God and to live by the law. And even the Sadducees and the Pharisees were always throwing questions out at him. And as he was teaching in the temple, trying to trip them up, but Jesus did not yell at them. Jesus took their questions and listened and he listened deeply behind into the root of the problem that was generating that question. And Jesus always spoke to that root. Wasn't it, I could be wrong, but Zacchaeus also, like he went to his house, right? You know, it's like kind of left what was happening and went, um, you know, went to his space. Yes. Yes. So exactly. So with the religious leaders, Jesus always was doing like these prophets are trying to get them to see, trying to get them to understand. Jesus spoke up to them when the opportunity uh, was given, when, when he was given the place and the opportunity, when they came to him and asked a question, he absolutely spoke to them and tried to fix what was wrong. But Jesus also absolutely stepped in between them and the people when that was necessary. And the third category of people are the Romans, the empire, the folks with all the power who don't give a crap who Jesus is. And what did be the politicians? (laughs) the, The Herods and the pilots of the world. What did Jesus do? When, 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 when confronted with them. Well, he presented them the same information he presented everybody else. Nope. Is it the, the quote about give unto Caesar? 
That was when he was talking to the Sadducees, you know, or the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, you know. I don't know. But, I was just thinking of the tax collectors that he friended along yeah, the way. No, I'm talking about the mm-hmm. actual Romans. Okay. I'm talking about the the soldiers, the Romans, the when they're not in. So he when he's talking to a Roman, there's stories like the Roman centurion, remember? Mm-hmm. And where 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 when he's dealing with them one-on-one as human beings, he deals with them as one of you guys said, as a person. Mm-hmm. He deals with them as a person. But when he's confronted with the powers that have the ability, he's he's pulled into court and he's presented to the powers who can kill him. Jesus' response was silence. There are a couple of times he said, well, that's what you say, you know, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, his response to empire was silence. It was, I'm not going to explain this to you. This is, this is the basic casting pearls before swine. I'm just not, this is not a dialogue. Clearly this situation, the power dynamics in, in this situation are not a dialogue. So when you're confronted with evil in the world, try to keep this framework in mind. Okay, because how you respond in a particular situation depends on the situation. How does that part of him being silent with that, how does that apply to us now? Like what situation are are we talking about in our world right now? Like, should we not be politically active? I mean, is that do you understand what I'm asking? I do understand. And so that's a that's a great question. Okay. Should we be politically active? Is that, you know, is that the where does that fall in this spectrum of response? That's Don't what I'm not getting. <laughs> I think that there's so many voices out there that if people Don't speak up for the marginalized. Don't speak up for those that are being oppressed. Then it's only going to get worse or it's just going to be swept under the rug and ignored. So we do have to speak up in the ways that we're comfortable with. Or even stretching ourselves a little. But yes, I I would see our political action at the same as Jesus standing between the people of power and the marginalized. I would see us, we're all people of white, generally, you know, privilege here on this call. And we are in a position to protect, to do something politically to protect the marginalized. So when do we keep quiet? That's that's what I'm not getting out of this. Okay. So let's talk about scenarios about when to keep quiet. So, there, it doesn't have to be a situation where, like Jesus, where it's life or death and you're, you know, pulled into a big court. It can be something as simple as the Christmas dinner table with relatives. <laughs> if your message isn't received openly, you know, that's a that, you know that's a good indicator that uh, you probably just don't want to go there. <laughs> it it's a situation you know. So I'm bringing that up because that's a situation where you have to decide: Am I going to speak up, or is it pointless? Right? Or is this a two way conversation, <laughs> Kelly? What'd you say? Can I just stay home? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we have to do that. We have to put up boundaries. I really like what you just said, um, Pastor Gail, though, about you you said this is when Jesus was silent. It was because this is not a dialogue. So I I feel like that is a very clear kind of when I speak up versus when I don't. If it is not a dialogue, 
and there's not res you know, a respectful, um, doesn't mean it can't be heated, but at least you know, exchange of information and exchange of views, even if you land on different viewpoints. To me, that was a, that's one that I'm definitely holding, you know, well, adopting. Let me, let me ask you, because Jesus was there for, quote, the house of Israel, but of course the Jews wanted him to confront and and uh, overtake or or declare their independence or whatever from the Romans, and because he didn't do that, well, that helped lead to his crucifixion. So Jesus made it clear what his I thought he made it clear what his goals were, and they were not to confront the powers that of the world that be at that time. You know, I think that Jesus was called to confront the powers of the world that be. I don't think he was called to do it as a military leader. At least not that. What was expected of him. That'll be later. You know, so, so I, I think that we are called to stand against evil in the world wherever we find it. I think we are called to protect the marginalized and the defenseless. I think we are called to meet people's needs. And, uh, and like Eric and Ellen were talking about, I think we are called to enter into painful dialogue sometimes, right? As long as it's dialogue. But as Rhonda right. pointed out, sometimes it's not dialogue and we have a boundary. Jesus was establishing a boundary with those Romans. You know, he was saying, no. Nope. <laughs> not going there. I have already said everything I'm going to say about this. You know what I've said. This is not like a surprise to you. You know already. I'm not saying anything else. Gail? Yeah. Is that, would that be the equivalent of like, I can't even remember her name now, but because I've been blocked from her blog for a long time, but it was something, Mommy, um, that she's very, she's part of Foreverful and and very much in in that organization, and she called out homosexuality a lot, um, and the Franklin Graham and the 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 bloggers that are that huge negative voice out in our world, who are not going to listen to us, and a lot of their followers who are not going to listen to us. That's the kind of people we're talking about here. That's the kind of people that. It's time to walk away and not argue with them because we're not really arguing. We're not making any point except for the fact that there are marginalized people who see us standing up for them. Yeah. So um, you have to choose how you are going to be seen standing up so that people know that it's like your that is your light shining on a hill so that people know where to find you. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to engage every time with people who are being hateful. It doesn't. Because um, I've stopped that re in recent years just because it's too frustrating and it's not worth the energy that you put into it right. when they're not listening. Right. I think the word dialogue, as Ellen pointed out, is the really important part. And I want to pull out one last thing before we go, because we're over time. But there are, a, you know, there is a class, a large class of Christians who take these same teachings that we're reading in the prophets and say, oh, we have been chosen. We are protected. We are not going to go through all this, you know, pain and tribulation. And therefore, all we need to do is keep our heads down and let evil, you know, take over. And in fact, we don't want to fight the evil taking over because that will just hasten the end time and it will hasten the time when Jesus comes. And, you know, for what it's worth, I just want to hold that up and call that wrong. That is how we end up destroying our earth. That is how we end up um, letting war and genocide and terrible, terrible things happen that could be prevented if we stood up and spoke, you know, our voice alone is, isn't going to do much, you know, unless the Lord amplifies it, but it's still worthwhile. 
even if my voice is not heard beyond, you know, this circle of a few people, it matters to say the words and to do the things. So for today, I'm just want to send you out thinking about this scenario of, of the three kinds of interactions that you have in the world, those with the marginalized and the powerless, those with the power, okay, who, who are beaten up on the marginalized often, stepping on them, right? And empire, which is a whole nother thing. We're going to, I'm going to wrap this up because we're way, way over time, but I wanted to let you know, I've had a rough week. I think I will be able to get next week's lesson done in time to send it by Sunday to you. If I can't, I'm going to send you an email that says no class. And, and I have, it's just, I, the eye surgery has really impacted how much I can read in a day and work. So I'm working at about half mast right now. Um, And so I will also soon have to have the other die done. Um, And then we've got Christmas week. And so there could be a a string of, you know, the next, over the next couple of months, I may need to cancel more than once. And I will just have to let you know each Sunday. I will let you know, either you're going to get everybody, watch your email. You should get an email on Sunday. It will either say, I'm not going to make it this week. Or it will say, here's the readings and here's the study guide. Okay. You take care Thank of you, you young lady. I will try. You. <laughs> Y'all take care. Thank you for hanging in there today. Bye-bye. Thank you. We Bye-bye, love you. Bye. We love you too. Bye-bye.